Welcome to Hippie Witch, magic for a new age. I'm your host, Joanna DeBone, and this is a happy, hippie place for talking all things magic, witches and fiction, and creating the kick-ass life of your dreams. Hi, thanks for joining me for episode 431 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe and I am the movie-loving creatrix behind Kick-Ass Switch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com or back on the description page for this episode back on Blog Talk Radio where you will also find a link to today's fascinating guest Leslie Combe-Mall and this is a great way this is not the final episode it's the second to the final episode of 2019 but I think this is a great way to wrap up 2019 and to maybe inspire some of your entertainment activities for the final weeks of 2019 because Leslie is a movie buff and we are gonna have a lot of fun here on this episode before I get into all of that of course I have to thank the amazing people who helped me keep the lights on and food on the kids table and that would be the awesome patrons of the hippie witch podcast over on patreon I especially want to give a shout out to new patrons Kayla Amy Irwin and the basic white witch hello Amanda how y'all doing I hope you guys loved vlogmas I did the 12 days of vlogmas on patreon this month it was a lot of work and a lot of fun and if you missed it and you want to check that out you can you can join us over there anytime those videos will be sitting up there forever maybe I don't know for a very long time (laughs) I also want to announce Coming off the heels of me talking so much about Lee Bardugo's Ninth House, which is the book club pick still for Patreon. We have a little book club over there, and Ninth House was supposed to be our November book club pick, and then it kind of bled into December, and some people still don't have their book because Lee Bardugo is a badass and Ninth House was a huge hit. And so a bunch of people are still waiting on the library wait lists for their books. (laughs) So I read Ninth House. I was all gung-ho about it. I've talked about it here a couple of times. And so I decided I wanted to read everything that Lee Bardugo has ever written. I just do that sometimes. I'm a fan. I like to geek out and get involved in a fandom. So I started reading Shadow and Bone in November when I was doing NaNoWriteMo which went very well, by the way. Thank you to those who have inquired about that. I did trace that journey on Instagram, which I'm still on a break from. But if you want to see how it went, you can pop over to Instagram. I'm Joanna DeVoe over there. And I posted daily, my daily NaNoWriteMo progress. But anyway, by the end of each day of November, I was so exhausted that it really wasn't fair to the author to try to get into any book. And so I didn't really know if I liked Shadow and Bone. It just wasn't grabbing me. I couldn't really put my finger on why. But now looking back, I could probably say it was because I was friggin' exhausted. 
<laughs> Once I got to the halfway point, though, and things started heating up with a character known as the Darkling, I was in it. I was in it, and I finished it last night breathlessly, and I have already ordered Siege and Storm, which is the sequel, and it's supposed to be on my doorstep today because that's how Amazon rolls. So I'm really excited. I have officially entered the Grishaverse. And that kind of ties in with today's episode because Lee Bardugo has a deal with Netflix. They are turning her Grishaverse into a series. Filming has already begun. I'm not actually sure when the thing is going to be released. But it is a mashup, which I thought was really interesting, of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, which is what I'm reading now, and Six of Crows, the Six of Crows duology. Both take place in this universe that she created known as the Grishaverse, and they're just mashing up all the books kind of to create a new thing, but with familiar characters and whatnot. So a lot of people are excited about that, and... I love tapping into a current vein of pop culture and feeling like a part of it in my little fangirl kind of way. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. And then something else I wanted to mention that is going on in pop culture is they recently announced the Golden Globes nominees. It, we're entering into awards season, like leading up to the Oscars, which I get really excited and love to geek out about. But it was a bit of a scandal when they announced the Golden Globes nominees because no women, exactly zero women, for, were nominated for Best Director. And there were a lot of women who directed movies, great, notable movies this year. And people were pissed and the director of a movie that got a lot of critical acclaim, Alma Harrell, I think is how you say her name, people were asking her opinion of this whole scandal. And she had a really interesting thing to say on Twitter, of course, because that's where I hang. And part of what she said, this isn't the whole tweet, but she said, these are not our people and they do not represent us. Do not look for justice in the award system. We are building a new world. And I thought that that was so cool. I could go off in a million different directions of what that reminds me of and how it's relevant even to the witchy community, but I won't because we got a lot of content here today to get through and I want to get to it all. And I have some personal thoughts that I want to try to share with you. I actually might do a standalone solo episode so I can explore this in more detail. But I've been thinking about the direction that I want to take the podcast. Today's episode is a really good example of where I want to go with this. I really want to continue to focus on creating the kick-ass life of your dreams, but really open that up more to people who have created unusual inspiring lives for themselves and of course I have an interest in the arts movies literature things like that that's just how I lean I'm not a sports fan so it would probably be people in fields like that or psychology or personal development stuff like that and then I also just want to keep talking more to authors I was thrilled to have Joanne Harris on the show this year and Lori Forrest, and I'd like to do more 
interviews with authors that write magical fiction of some kind. And I was thinking about that one day coming off of this amazing, awesome episode of the Film Courage podcast. It was really inspiring me and making me think. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but I was driving by churches. There's this street here that has a lot of churches and it got me thinking this somehow all of this like mashed up into my mind to be like, is pop culture my religion? You may remember a long time ago, I did an episode here on creating your own pop pantheon, which since is not that unusual of a thing, but at the time it was a fairly fresh idea. It's still one of the most popular episodes I've ever done. So maybe you all are listening to me saying this going like, yeah, obviously, Joe, you're a dork and <laughs> movies and books are definitely your religion. And it could be. But I was thinking about that because I often say, like, I'm not a Wiccan. I love magic. I call myself a witch. I follow the wheel of the year, but I do not subscribe to any religion. And I was one day just randomly thinking, maybe I do. Maybe my religion is like books and movies and pop culture because I do tend to get, would you compare like a really geeky fandom to worship? I don't know. Maybe that's as close to worship as I get. <laughs> Not counting nature. I will definitely get the whole kind of feelings when I'm standing in a beautiful forest or some really inspiring bit of nature, but I'm a city witch. So more often than not, it might be happening in a dark theater or when I'm like under the covers with a really good book that I get that oh, feeling. <laughs> and there's a couple of books that are books, quotes, speaking of books that come to mind, both from authors. One is Stephen King saying, life is not a support system for art. It's the other way around. And that quote really ties into this idea of religion because religion is meant to support your life. It's not supposed to be the other way around. So that I was thinking about that. And then Albert Camus said, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. And that really just ties into my personal mission as a novelist. I'm launching a second career in 2020 as a novelist in pursuit of a traditional publishing deal. This is something I've wanted to do for a really long time. And it's just funny to see, to look at the novel that I've written and the entire series that I want to write and be like, basically I'm talking about all the things I talk about in the Hippie Witch podcast, except through fiction. I'm trying always to get to the truth, always digging, 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 digging for the truth. And I think sometimes we can do that better through folklore, mythology, pop culture, and, and fiction. And I think that's why certain mythologies survive throughout cultures and generations of time, even though we might call it Star Wars or the Marvel comic series. We're really telling the same tales again and again and again and again because I think these are universal human truths that we can all relate to to one degree or another so I was thinking a lot about that and I saw something I did during NaNoWriteMo is that I wanted to keep my head in the game of 
the novel that I was working on. And so I either, if I was going to read something, it would be something like Lee Bardugo's Shadow and Bone, something in the fantasy realm, something that would keep me like, ooh, in that vibe. If I watched something on TV, it would be like that. Or when I was cooking or cleaning, I would listen to a lot of videos or podcasts on writing or breakdowns on like what makes a film work, stuff like that to keep my head in the game that way. And one of those videos was about writing dialogue. And they were talking about how good dialogue is nothing like the way that people talk in real life, that that's a fallacy, that you should write how people talk in real life. Great dialogue does not have a bunch of ums, well, uh, you know, uh, all the stuff that I edit out of my podcast, that shit does not fly. <laughs> it just, that is how we talk in real life, but it doesn't work in a movie. It doesn't make it more realistic. It makes it annoying and it makes it boring. So we have these really talented writers that create this snappy dialogue. And it's often the thing that, you know, if somebody insults you and you walk away and then five minutes later you think of the best comeback and you're totally kicking yourself like, why? Why couldn't I have thought of that in the moment? Well, these writers write those lines for these movie stars to look that cool. Like they're thinking of the witty comeback in the moment. And that got me thinking about how, you know, we elevate movie stars often to the status of gods in a way. And, and it's just fascinating how that's actually a collaborative process and an illusion. It's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. We take these exceptionally beautiful or charismatic people and then a talented writer crafts the words that they are going to say. And then a composer enhances their performance with the music. And then there's the lighting, you know, beautiful cinematography, the editing. It's all designed to elicit a specific emotional experience in you, the viewer. And to me, like, that's magic. That's movie magic. And it's done in marketing, too, which is something I talk a lot about here which is why it's really important to understand how propaganda works and how marketing works and propaganda to manipulate you into separating you from your money or making poor decisions politically, things like that. Know thyself is very important. Critical thinking is very important. But also, it's power to know how these things work in terms of your own personal magic. So in magic, we often say that the brain cannot tell the difference between something that has happened and something that has been vividly imagined. And that's why we do a lot of these meditations or rituals with a process like movie making where the imagining is done for you with such skill and community effort, it makes sense, right, that millions of teenage girls and twy moms throughout the world all at the same time thought that they were in love with Edward Cullen. It was designed that way. That was the intended outcome. And there's an art and a science to it just like magic. And I wouldn't even say like magic. I would say, and that is magic. 
it's the ultimate glamour magic. And as I was driving down that street past those churches, I was thinking about old European cathedrals and how they were designed to give you that transcendent experience when you walk through the door. I can only imagine what that was like in a time when people did not have access to all of this privilege and technology and they were poor and they're, you know, living in a shack in the same clothes they've worn for two weeks and sharing a loaf of bread among their family. And then they walk into this like, whoa, this stunning cathedral designed to evoke a transcendent experience. And what's interesting to me also, it's all interesting to me, but another way it's interesting to me is the way people have in magic or even something like kundalini yoga or certain meditation techniques or maybe by the use of plant medicine, tried to create that sense of transcendence that the church used to create for us collectively to create that for themselves on a personal individual level and in that way spirituality has become democratized it has been ripped from the greedy claws of the institution and given back to the rightful authorities us <laughs> to the individual we are reclaiming our personal connection to the ultimate creative source the source that created us and then from there we can pick and choose in what ways we want to play with that creativity creativity with a capital c being god if you will and then engaging in our own creativity and I guess creativity with the little c, the creativity of others through movies and books and art and music and if we so choose, religion. And a lot of this line of thinking was inspired by that episode of Film Courage. They have a YouTube channel and a podcast and it's the same content on YouTube, they will break down interviews with writers and filmmakers, but with an emphasis on writing, into little segments, like themed segments. So they'll do an entire interview that will air on their podcast and on YouTube, but then they break it down into little bite-sized chunks on YouTube as well. I love it. And they had a woman, Dr. Connie Shears. She's a behavioral scientist, a professor, and an author. She wrote a book called The Science of Screenwriting, The Neuroscience Behind Storytelling Strategies, which you know I was so all about this interview. And they had her on the show, and it was just, oh, I was screaming. I had to keep rewinding because I was just so in love with everything she was saying. And she was talking about how... Human beings will willingly go into a dark room and sit quietly for hours to take in a film, to have that experience, and how she is fascinated by the psychology of that. When she was talking about that, it reminded me of the way that I'm often in awe when I go to a rock concert or a music festival and you see like thousands of people behaving themselves, even drunk, high people. <laughs> they'll all like get in a line to use the bathroom and, and then they'll like 
line up in front of the stage and wait for 45 minutes for their favorite rock star to come on. And they sit there like children at kindergarten waiting and looking up at the stage. And and then you, the a really great performer, an inspiring, charismatic singer, songwriter will get up there and have thousands of people at the same time swaying and clapping and everybody's so joyful and happy to be there. And I that always gets me choked up. That feels like a religious experience to me. But like what makes us willing to do that? Why are we willing to do that? Why do we do that with a bunch of strangers? It is fascinating. I agree with her. And she was saying that creativity from a behavioral science standpoint is considered the ultimate cognitive process. And she goes into why that is. And and if you want to hear that, you can just look her up. Connie Shears, look up the film Courage podcast or look them up on YouTube if you're interested in how movies are made or just what I'm specifically talking about here, the science behind movie watching And she talks about how storytelling is a uniquely human gift. As far as we know, there are no other animals that engage in fantasy and storytelling. And so she talks about how even though she is a brain scientist and she thinks in a very scientific way, when she sits down to see a movie, she is not a scientist. That part of her brain is not active because she sees the process as being magic it's magic to her and it's just a wonderful 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 you know what I'll just link to it I'll just link to it so you can hear for yourself how about that instead of me trying to paraphrase what she said but it was that interview that got me thinking about religion and this experience that was intentionally created back in the day to give people a transcendent feeling when they walked into church and you know all the costumes that the pope wears and the preacher and who whatever kind of religion you're in the incense all that designed to give you an experience and how many of us we live in this secular culture but we still crave that and we still seek that out and then back in the day that is when a lot of the storytelling took place before we had even before we had books I was going to say before we had movies but even before like every home had a stack of books on the shelves people did most of their storytelling and and listening at church fascinating fascinating (laughs) so during this interview with leslie that's coming up here we're going to talk about movies she owns an art gallery which i think you should hang around because if even if you're not interested in women in film which is her special interest it's an awesome conversation i hope you'll stick around through the whole thing but toward the end we talk about how she owns an art gallery and features the work of artists like illustrators, graphic designers, those people that create the art for movies, including Harry Potter. I just wanted to give a shout out to that. So maybe I could entice you to listen to the whole thing if you're like, women in film, no. It's super interesting. Please stick around. And I wanted to make a couple of notes before I lead to the interview here. One is while we're talking, I was saying uh, Catherine Bigelow, who directed Point Break. She, I think, was the first woman to win a Best Director Oscar, if I'm not getting that twisted. I feel like it was her that she won that for The Hurt Locker. She won the Oscar for that. 
But anyway, I was saying she was the first woman director that made me start thinking about women directors. And then right after the interview, speaking of thinking of your clever comeback five minutes later, right after the interview, I was like, you know what? I don't think that's true. I should give a shout out to Nora Ephron because she's really the first woman who I thought of as a woman director, but I didn't think about her as a woman director. <laughs> if you don't know who Nora Ephron is, she wrote When Harry Met Sally. In addition to writing and directing many movies like Sleepless in Seattle, Julie and Julia, You've Got Mail, like Nora was a whole vibe. Very specific. And those movies are still beloved and on regular rotation on TV around the world to this day. But she was the first director I was aware of. I just didn't think a lot about that because I grew up with her as this kind of friendly cultural icon who had just always been there, like Star Wars or The Beatles. She just kind of was. But Catherine Bigelow was the first woman who made me start thinking about the process of directing and a woman in that position and in a way that defied the stereotypes of women's interests. We also talk a little bit about Catherine Hardwick, who is one of my very favorite directors because I love her visual style. And so I was kind of kicking myself for not mentioning Floria Sigismondi in the same stroke because she directed The Runaways with Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning and with a similar visual uh, it's it's really different her she's a video director that's what she's known for is directing music videos so it definitely has a different style to it but it's a similar color palette and I just saw her uh, Twitter. I get I get my pop culture news through Twitter. <laughs> but I just saw in the news that she has a movie coming out in January. Speaking of women directors who rock, like who are really amazing. It's called The Turning. It's a horror story. It's actually a modern retelling of Henry James' The Turning of the Screw. But I have to say, if you have never seen Floria Sigismondi's the Runaways, starring Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning. What are you doing with your life? What? What? <laughs> Every time I think of that movie, I think of this montage to Iggy Pop, The Stooges, I Want to Be Your Dog, where Joan Jett and Cherry Curry are making out. It is the sexiest shit I have ever seen. I was watching that like, oh my god. Am I a lesbian? <laughs> it was so sexy and so cool. And it was just, oh, it gave me all the feelings. And I just loved that entire movie, I have to say. And then I was like, wait, where did she go? I was waiting for the next movie to come out. But she really is a music video director primarily. And then she fits in a movie every once in a while. And she has a really specific, she's also a photographer. She's got gorgeous photography and this really cool visual style and there's this one color palette that she has in common with Katherine Hardwick even though their styles are really different that it reminds me of my friend Jamie Gold I'm going to mention Jamie too since I'm just going off on all kinds of tangents here she is co-creating this new tarot deck that's photography based 
And the images have this same blue-green tinge that I love so much that is in the Runaways. And it's that color palette that is like 40% responsible for my love of Twilight, which Catherine Hardwick directed. <laughs> There's just something about it that gives me the feels. It really speaks to me. And it was Catherine Hardwick. By the way, go to Instagram and look up the key tarot that is jamie gold's tarot deck and they're just getting rolling they have i don't even know like an eighth of the deck done and it's coming out and they're gonna do pre-order soon and i'm more than happy to give her a shout out because it's really beautiful if you love tarot decks the key tarot on instagram check it out anyway it was katherine hardwick the director of that first twilight movie that is partly to blame for me inviting today's guest Leslie Combamal onto the show today. And I'm remembering now the very first moment that Leslie caught my eye. It was right after I had interviewed Lori Forrest earlier this year. Lori is the author of The Black Witch Chronicles. And it was before I had even posted that interview. I had just recorded it. And so I was like clicking around on the Black Witch hashtag and I just ran across Women Rocking Hollywood. That's Leslie's Twitter account. I ran across a tweet that she did. Apparently, she had just read The Black Witch and was giving a shout out to like Hollywood in general, saying, yo, Hollywood, why don't you make this series into a movie or, you know, a Netflix show or something like that? And I was like, exactly. Yes. Right on. And then, of course, I had to see who this woman was and I clicked on it and I saw she runs this account called Women Rocking Hollywood, and she had just done this panel at Comic-Con that included Katherine Hardwick, who I love, and so now here we are. <laughs> She's on the show. And I also, one more thing before, before I turn to the interview, is during this interview, she talked about how magical, how witchy Frozen 2 is, and how it gets into elemental magic. And I really had no intention of seeing it, but now I'm looking forward to seeing it on Christmas break. So here she is. There's a witchy surprise at the beginning of this interview that I think you're really going to enjoy. Leslie Combe-Mall. And she's going to say her name better than I can here in just a second. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Can you, before we get started, tell everyone how to pronounce your full name? Because I know after this, they're going to want to run to go look you up and they need to know how to say your name properly. It's Leslie Combemal. But, and also I'm known as Cinema Siren and I created Women Rocking Hollywood. So those are all places to find me. I 100% wanted to have you on because of movies. I met you on Twitter, which is not uncommon for me, and I was smitten immediately by the photo that you currently still have, I think, across the top. I saw Catherine Hardwick in there somewhere. Oh, I'm yeah. A, mm -hmm. I am a huge Catherine Hardwick fan, and I was like, who is this woman? And you were so friendly. And to make a long story short, you eventually agreed to come on my podcast, which I'm thrilled about. I want to talk about movies, women in movies, women directors specifically, but I thought we could kind of seduce our witchy audience here by telling them a little bit about your secret side hustle that you have as a reader, which I did not know when I asked you to come on the show. 
Okay. Well, it's not really even a side hustle because I've only recently been willing to have more people know about it because it's something that I've had my whole life. I've never not been able to do it. So it's one of those weird things. Like if you see color a certain way, you think everybody can see that. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really realize, I mean, you know, I've always, I've, I've, I've always seen dead people. That was something else that was weird that, uh, I just kind of assumed everybody else could do. And I feel really weird about it. I've always had a really hard time being out about it. And what's funny is in terms of being Wiccan or not, people just ascribe that belief around me. They just assume, I think I just carry which energy, you know, in the sense that I am, I believe in energy and the power of energy and the power of creation and our being able to do all of that together or through magic, through our own magic, through earth magic or elemental magic. But so from the time I was a baby and I, I lived in Positano, Italy and France, and then and my family's French. And then I came to the United States and everywhere I've ever lived, there've always been spirits. I've lived in every house I've ever been in. And also I've always been able to look at people and discern information about them. And I just always thought that was something everyone could do. And, you know, as I got older, I started realizing that there was a lot of stuff that I could pick up on that most other people have not been able to tune in for themselves. And I like it a lot better in physical, you know, when I'm physically with somebody, um, picking up their information and over my lifetime so far, I've been able to be really good at only bringing in and reading the positive information or positive energy from people and been able to not call it in any more than if somebody really needs to have information for me, I might do it. Or if it's an exchange where the person and I are either actively making a choice of uh, a barter of some kind, or that they're helping me with something around my own life or whatever, then I'll give them information about their, you know, their path and what their, their, what might be things that are keeping them from their highest path and, and, um, information about really whatever is happening in their life. And, um, I have gotten paid for it. I absolutely believe in people getting paid for doing that because it's just like any other gift. But for me, it's been more about not wanting to open it up to a bigger group of people, but rather choosing to use it either for my own life or for people that, that for some reason it makes sense to do it with like close friends or, but anyway, yeah, that's me. That's fascinating. I didn't realize you're speaking specifically about when you said reader, I immediately thought tarot cards, but you're talking about reading, reading energy. Yeah. In fact, um, it's funny because people usually think that they want me to use tarot cards. I don't even know how to use tarot cards, but beyond that, I, I am of the belief that, and the tarot is very powerful, but that a lot of times people are using something like a tarot card or like, um, regular cards or any number of other physical expressions of, of reading information, because it's really kind of scary. I think to some people, if you just stare at them (laughs) and give them all the information, because then it's like, Oh, you're the one doing it. Whereas if you have tarot cards or you're using some other, 
form of reading and it's a conduit, then people can be like, oh, it's the cards. The cards are telling me that. Oh my gosh, Leslie, I'm about to give away a huge spoiler for a novel that my first novel I've been writing, but my lead character does that. She uses tarot cards. She uses tarot cards to make people comfortable. But she doesn't need them. She doesn't need them. Right. That, that's a big spoiler. You absolutely don't need them. I mean, it's, it, I think they're beautiful, and I'm not casting aspersions on anyone who does that. But for me, the only reason anyone... And it does make people really uncomfortable if I read them. I've, everyone always thinks it's going to be really cool when I start doing it. And I'm like, I don't know. Have you ever had anyone do this for you before? And I'll do it. And it freaks them out every time. I mean, some people get used to it because I think there are a lot of people who really want to have that kind of gift and maybe aren't quite tuning as well into it. And some people encounter those people a lot, but then if you encounter someone who can actually do it, it's a little bit weird. (laughs) It's a little freaky. Well, what are you, I mean, are you staring at them? Are you seeing auras? Are you going off of a feeling or an intuition? It depends on what I'm doing because sometimes it's because uh, now here, here's another weird little we're never going to wind up talking about women in film, but (laughs) this is so interesting. We'll get there. We'll get there for sure. And it's totally fine either way. But I, my personal belief system is not around humans still being human after we die. So the fact that I see spirits is really weird to me and doesn't really make sense to my belief system. So it's even funnier that when I'm reading someone, I'm like, okay, so your grandmother's here and she has things she wants to tell. So how do, I don't even believe in that, but still that's what I see and it's dead on when I do it. So it depends on if I'm reading somebody's spirits that are there to give them information or help them support them through a change or through a fear of change that they might have. And a lot of people have people that just walk with them everywhere. And they maybe can tell energetically, but they are not really aware of which person it is or sometimes it's people from a long time back. You know, they're not people that they personally knew. They're just their, you know, spirit guides and they're there with them. And, um, I help them get information from them because, you know, like it's really frustrating for these spirit guides to try to give them information and they can't hear them because if you're not totally tuned in to the goddess that is you, the power of creation that you have inside yourself, you know, because in my belief system, you either spiraling up or spiraling down. So if you're not choosing toward moving toward your own creative energy of, of where we come from and everything, then you might not hear things that are going to get you to the highest place that you can get to. Right. So I'm like, your grandmother wants you to know, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You know, you really need to just, she's suggesting you really need to blah, 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 you know? And so I can do that. And that case, I see those people or whoever they are, Um, If it's someone that they knew in their lifetime, people that I see come any way they want. So like my sister died when she was 16 and a half. And when she appears, she appears older than she was when she died. And she has curlier hair because she always did want curly hair. So it's funny to me. She chooses to be a little bit older. My grandmother, when I see her, she's about 41 and she died when she was 95. And I know she was 41 because I went to my dad and I asked her about the outfit that she was wearing when I saw her. And my dad said, oh yeah, I remember that outfit. She had it ex- you know, a certain year and, and that was, she was around 41 at the time. So those, that's that part. 
Goodness. You are so fascinating. Before you go on, I just have to put a little note here. Like, I love that there's no belief. This is not a belief-based thing. This is just reporting the facts, people. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people do what I do that come on to your show or what, but there it is. And actually I was just planning on talking about my art gallery, but you know, it's totally fine because people find out about this, this about me eventually. And to be honest, most people don't know this about me because only it's only been recently that I've been willing to tell everybody that I can do it. And I don't, really care anymore if people believe it or not it doesn't matter to me because I have nothing to gain by people believing me or not you do a lot of work with the public too yeah. you own yeah. a art you own an art gallery you host this I think you did it three years if I'm remembering correctly you host an annual San Diego comic-con panel called women rocking Hollywood which you moderate so you're great in front of people you're around people all the time it's really interesting that you happen to read energy as well. Well, I don't do it. If I'm out in the world, I don't, I'm generally turned off. (laughs) I'm not going to do it out. And that would be very bad. You have to be really careful about taking in energy. You know, over a long period of time, I've learned how not to, not to have to do that because that would be really hard in that in out in the world and at comic con, certainly. I mean, there are lots of environments where you have to be really careful about that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not picking up uh, people's energies all the time because, because we're not really safe in the world a lot of the time in terms of energy, uh, unless we're guarded and we know, you know, to, to stay at a certain vibrational level that keeps us safe around other people. Do you find that that it's been helpful though for you in terms of like navigating Hollywood mm, centric rooms, maybe where some people maybe don't have the best of intentions. Can you pick up on that or you just shut it off altogether and just go on with your day? I don't think it's possible to shut it out completely. I think I'd be kidding myself if I thought that I was doing that. And I'm pretty good at telling people's intentions. But, you know, I'm part human. Just Well, we're all human and we're all not human, depending on how you look at it. So I make mistakes just like everybody else does. And, and I also look, I expect the best from people. And even people who are not very good about other people or not very nice to other people are nice to me because I expect them to be nice and respectful. But I also don't put myself, you know, just for a second going into women who work in Hollywood, they have a really hard uh, job a lot of the time having to navigate the way pe- people's perceptions around female filmmakers and what, how they're, what they're capable of or not capable of. And so, and I don't put myself in that, like, I would not want to be a female director because it's just, I, they're so excited and so enthusiastic and in love and so full of passion about what they do. I want to amplify them. I would not want to be them because I don't want to be in that kind of environment. So I pretty much stay out of a lot of environments that have a lot of negativity. Um, and then I expect the best from everyone. So I guess those are the ways that I navigate that kind of environment. Why do you love women in film so much? Like, how did this start for you? What is this about? Because you do have a lot of passion, for sure, to be able to sustain everything that you do and to do it at the level that you're doing it. Uh, well, I think from the time I was really, really little... I have always felt very strongly about expressing ourselves as who we are, whether it's, I mean, in a perfect world, there would be no gender and we would all just be, 
you know, there wouldn't be nothing binary about it and we could all just be who we are. That would be the best case scenario. Um, but some people really feel femme and some people really feel butch and some people are right in the middle. And, and I think we should all be able to be who we are and do what we want. And that was from a really early age that I knew that. And I love movies. I watched them with my dad from the time I was really little. And I just started noticing there were not people, not only not like me, there were not people of color playing anything but secondary roles. There were not, you know, and I loved jazz when I was really little, like from French, I'm French. So we, we, we like Jerry Lewis and we like jazz. Those are both things that are actually true about French people. And, um, so I loved Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. And I noticed early on that there were these really big gaps in who got, who saw what and who got paid what and what was being shown to the world and what history we were being taught and all of that stuff. And so I've always been pretty vocal and opinionated about the fact that women are capable and we, we, we raise the world. (laughs) So we make the children and we have something to say in film and in our lives, whatever part we play, you know, in whatever environment that we're in or cultural experience we're in, we all have a vo- we should all have a voice. We should all be able to say what we want to say. And, and there are a lot of films out there that don't do that. So quite a while ago, I started writing about and amplifying as much as possible uh, women who make movies or are below the line, which is, um, you know, men and women, but people creating the part of movies that we don't get to see. That's the finished product. We're seeing it as a finished product, but the cinematographers and production designers and concept artists and all those people have such an important part to play, composers. And and the number of women that get hired as composers in, in Hollywood is tiny. It's like 2% or something. It's like minuscule. So I just wanted to be able to amplify them. And there's a... There's an energy that women bring to film, whether they're making a James Bond movie, a Star Trek movie, or, or an intimate portrayal of a character, you know, or a slice of life, whatever it might be, they bring something individual to it, and also they bring their, own, their cultural understanding to it. And I want those people to be able to have a voice. So that's yes. why I do what I do. And it's not always the movies that women make are not necessarily what people would categorize as feminine. The first movie I saw where I was aware of the director, which I was not aware until after I saw it in the theaters and I kept going back to see it again and again (laughs) was point break. And I, I kept going back after I saw it the first time and I learned a woman directed it because it was just like, I've always hated action movies. And this is the first time I saw one where I was so hooked and it was so exciting to me. And then I found out a woman directed and I was like, no way, I need to see this again. And that's where my interest in women filmmakers began. And so since then, what other female filmmakers have you found interesting or fun to watch? Oh, the 90s were big for me. I was pounding the pavement in Hollywood, so I was just very interested in movies in general. I saw just about everything that came out in that decade, but I was really excited about and saw every single thing that Nicole 
Hold Center did, starting with Walking and Talking. That's what mm-hmm. really sold me. Lisa Cholodenko with Oh, I, I interviewed her recently. You she's did? lovely. Oh, yeah. She's, she's so cool. Yeah, she's lovely. She absolutely blew my mind. And then I have a huge chip on my shoulder about Catherine Hardwick because... <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, she just the getting actually, kicked to the curb after the first movie thing. Oh my God, it makes me so <laughs> mad. I could throw my microphone across the room right now. It still makes my blood boil because her, the reason I read the Twilight series, it was my first YA fiction ever, was because of the movie. And it's so beautiful. It's so gorgeous. It's so well done. And then they dropped her. And then all of the movies afterward, even though they kept Melissa Rosenberg on board as the screenwriter, which I give them credit for, they, they were directed by a series of men. And they're so hokey and cheesy. And these men did not understand the world. And they ruined an entire franchise, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think people don't give Catherine Hardwick enough credit for casting the leads who both have proven to be very powerful actors in their, you know, subsequent films and making really interesting choices, both of whom are in, you know, at the center of uh, really well-reviewed films this year. So she cast it well, her musical choices, the production design, you know, she was a production designer before, she became a director. So she had a a really good aesthetic for color and, um, you know, placement and camera choices and, you know, all of that stuff. So yeah, she's, she's great. But the thing is, is that one of the problems with getting more films being seen and promoted and, and having more people, more of an audience for female filmmakers is that, people tend to only know a few female directors. And so, you know, Ava DuVernay and Patty Jenkins and Elizabeth Banks. I mean, those kinds of people and Catherine Bigelow and Catherine Harwick. And that's kind of like it, that, that people assume that there are only a few directors out there. And that's actually something that's been echoed, not at, not as recently because we're really making... We're, a lot of people are working really hard to get more women hired for studio films, independent films, getting money for them, getting in distribution and, and in television. But, you know, is this idea that, Oh, well, there's just, there aren't enough female filmmakers and there are, there are a lot of female filmmakers. They're just not getting hired or they're only getting, they're making their first movie and then they're not getting a second chance at making their second movie. So you know, this year alone, I did make a list of some movies, if, if you want to hear yes, a few of them. That, I for sure do. Okay, so um, my favorite movie of the year, and this is male, female, any gender, what's, you know, whatever. My favorite movie of the year was Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is uh, this really beautiful film in French that takes place in a remote island in Brittany in, I think it's 1817-ish, and it's by... Celine Schiama, and it's about these two women. One is a portrait artist. She's young, and the other is her subject. Um, she's supposed to paint her in secret without letting her know, so she's becoming friends with her, and they fall in love. And it's really magical. So not only is it on my list, it's actually quite witchy. 
Oh, cool. So that is definitely a movie that people should see this year if they can seek it out. And then The Nightingale, which is by Jennifer Kent, and she did The Babadook. So some people will know her from that. She's Australian, New Zealand director. And it's a very hard movie to watch with lots of triggers, some very violent stuff in it, but it's basically a revenge film with the female gaze. So she, somebody does some horrible things to her family and she goes out to get revenge and she becomes, she makes an unlikely ally with an Aboriginal, somebody who is, he's the last living example of his tribe and they hate each other because they're both really racist and they have this uneasy truce and then they come to become strong allies and it's very powerful and to see revenge expressed I'll just use one example there's a scene that's really over the top like super ultraviolet thing where she kills someone and she kills this person and she does it in such a way that you start out going oh yeah you're gonna, she's going to get it. And then, you know, then she's starting to kill the guy and you're like, oh, uh, okay. And then you're like, oh, geez. Okay. This is not (laughs) making me feel good. I don't feel good. And by the end of it, you're like, that did not, that didn't solve the problem. It didn't make me feel better. I feel worse, which is such a like interesting feminine perspective on revenge in the way that it, this movie is, is filmed, because she's also the writer, is it takes you through these experiences that you might have seen in other films, not realized you'd never seen it from a female gaze. And then you get to see it from that way. It's, it's really powerful. So that's that. My third favorite is Tigers Are Not Afraid by Issa Lopez. And that is a movie that is supernatural, it's sort of a horror film and it's about children in peril. So some people aren't into seeing movies that are like that, but it is, it's a horror movie and it's incredibly beautiful and definitely from the female gaze. Um, and then A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is Marielle Heller. That's about Mr. Rogers. Have you seen that? No, I didn't know it was directed by a woman. Yes, it is. Oh! And see, one of the things that's really cool about that film in terms of the, the female gaze is that I think one of the reasons why we keep not having women named as, you know, one of the best directors or in top films is that everyone is so used to seeing a certain kind of film be lauded and be recognized as art that the kind of film that I think sometimes female filmmakers that are auteurs will make offer the opportunity to have silence and awkwardness and stillness in a way that people are not used to in film anymore or maybe have never been used to. And in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, there, Mr. Rogers is such an example of someone who, who stands in his own stillness and truly listens and is truly present in the experience of communication with somebody else when you're watching the film, you just, she just sits, she lets the cameras be still while he is allowing for silence. And you notice it and you're like, wow, I don't normally see that. That's like, she just let us be with him. It's really cool. That's why we need people like you, Leslie, because you say you notice, but I actually think most people don't notice those things. We need awesome film 
critics and reviewers like you to point these things out to us so that we do notice? Well, I think after you start seeing them, these things, after, you know, if somebody hadn't thought of it and then you go to the film and you're like, oh my gosh, it's true. I'm not used to being uncomfortable. And yet it makes me understand the characters in the film better and makes me feel more connected to these, to these characters, which is really cool. You know, it's such a more communicative kind of collaborative experience as a filmmaker and a film lover. So watching a film where you feel more like you're connected to the story and, and to the experience happening on screen. Yeah. Kind of dig that. Another movie, let's see. So there's a movie called Clemency, which has some really great acting in it. And it's depressing. I should warn you. Um, it's by Chin Yue, uh, Chin, I'm not sure I know how to pronounce her name. Chin Nunye Chukwu is how you pronounce her name. And that one has a couple of really great actors in it. And it's basically about a warden who's a woman who has to preside over people being uh, lethally injected. So, uh, you know, one of the things about right at the end of the year when I'm doing a lot of award screening and I'm having to vote on a bunch of awards because I'm in the Alliance of Women Film Journalists and in the Washington Area Film Critics Association and work with the Black Reel Awards. So I have to watch a bunch of movies and they're almost always really depressing. That one's one of them, but it's great. It's it's a really great movie. The Farewell was the one I was also going to mention, which is by Lulu Wang. And that's with Aquafina. Mm. You, you don't know about that movie? I do. I've seen the trailer. It looks really okay, good. Okay, there you go. And then, of course, Booksmart came out. Now, Booksmart is the earlier, earlier this year's version of Charlie's Angels in terms of people not going out to see it. And yet, God, I love that movie so oh, much. It's so good. Again, I did not know that Olivia Wilde was a director. I did not know she directed that movie until the final credits were rolling. And I had such a blast when I saw that. I was like, that's it. I love you forever, Olivia. I think it's a perfect movie. Oh my gosh. I, t- I went with my sister and we just laughed the whole time. And yeah. then I took, I took my husband and one of our best male friends to it and they loved it. And then they took people to it. And that is the way to help get these films seen is by bringing people that you know personally on the opening weekend. Um, there's a movie called Atlantics, which I think is going to be on Netflix soon. And that's by Maddie Diop. Uh, she's a um, Senegalese Parisian director. And she is the first woman of color to be accepted into the potential of winning Cannes Film Festival. And she got the second best award for the entire festival. So first time ever being included as a woman of color and then she wins, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. and that, that film is about, oh man, it's trippy great. It's uh, a woman who falls in love with a guy who uh, is trying to get paid for a job. He's working for a construction company and none of them are getting paid and they don't, they're all quite poor. So because they're not getting paid, they decide to take a boat to Spain. And I think it's Spain. And they die in the boat on the way to Spain. And they just disappear. This happens a lot with Senegalese. And so there's a lot of colonialism messages around the fact that a lot of people in Senegal feel like they're not enough if they don't go back to go to Europe and come back. 
that it's not enough just to be Senegalese. So that was one of the messages. But it's also very a very feminist film because this woman is supposed to be marrying someone who has money so that she can bring money to her family. And she doesn't want to. She wants to be with this other guy. And then he starts coming back as a ghost. But not just him, a bunch of other people who went off into these boats and were lost at sea. But they embody and possess the bodies of women. So here are all these guys coming back and they're kind of like a virus taking over these women who then go to the construction guy who's like got all millions of dollars and they're like, pay us. (laughs) So it's really cool because it's like messing with all of this gender. What is gender? What is the power of being feminine versus masculine? And then playing with gender in general, and it's about love. Yeah, it's it's really cool movie. I highly recommend that. Mm. Do you know about Honey Boy? Yes. Okay, yes. Yeah, so that's directed by a woman, Alma Harrell. Okay, yes. I knew that because I've listened to a lot of interviews promoting that, but I haven't seen it yet. Oh, cool. And then Queen and Slim just came out, and that's directed by Melina Katsukas. And written by Alina Waith, of course. And then I'll just, I mean, I could go on. Yeah. Frozen 2. <laughs> Have you seen Frozen 2? No. Do I want to see it? There were like little girls lined up around the block when my son Listen to me about this. Movie. You're going to think this is nuts, but it is so witchy. That film is so witchy. It's all about elemental magic. Okay. Okay. I loved the first one. I just didn't know if I was in for a sequel. They're very different. I mean, the second one is, I mean, you can't beat the first movie's songs. The first movie's songs are just great. And it's not that the second movie isn't great, but it's just very different. But they talk a lot about, and kind of the whole film is based around, um, you know, air magic and water magic and fire. I mean, it's, I'm watching this movie going, Oh my God, like Disney's going witchy. How cool (laughs) is that? I think Disney started closeted witchy. I just, it's so magical. Thank you for mentioning like a, I feel like it's hard to get people out to the movies, much less to see these little indie films. I feel like it's easier to direct them over to Netflix when they show up online. Right. Right. I think I mean, Hustlers did really well this year. And something that I noted was Elizabeth Banks, who made this latest Charlie's Angels film that I've already ranted here about, but on the podcast, she just like a week ago, it was announced. She got another gig directing and she's going to direct the invisible woman. And what I saw on Twitter and response to this news disgusted me I was surprised that she got a a follow-up movie because I didn't think that Hollywood could do that for her but they did and what people were saying on Twitter they were just so gleeful about the bombing of Charlie's Angels and just already projecting that this one would bomb too and it was just filled with hate and it made me so mad (laughs) here's what I think about Twitter because you know I have got um it's women rock film is what my Twitter handle is, as you know, because we're pals on there. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of people that follow me and 
it's really funny the number of people that fall off whenever I start talking about how important that support female filmmakers. I'm like, look, it's called women rocking Hollywood. You signed up for this. What are you having? Yes. A problem? And yet um, I feel like a, a, a good, it's not a good day on Twitter for me if I haven't gotten an insult via direct message. It's just, I have not done my job. <laughs> if I'm, if I am not getting insulted. So I think the thing is with Twitter, and I know you know this energetically, it, it it's just like the rest of the planet. It's just like the rest of the world. There are lots of bad people out there, lots of ignorant people, lots of terrified, fearful people. And it, they're able to express it in a fairly, um, not necessarily innocuous, but, you know, they're able to be more anonymous in that environment. And you just have to trust that even within the context of such a, a sea of negativity, there are always positive voices. And so you just have to think, well, all right, everybody wants to see women fail and they're able to say so on Twitter. But if you look hard enough, you will see all the people that are really for it. And you just have to raise those voices, yes. you know, above the din of rudeness and insult. Agreed. Agreed. That moment, that day when that news came out, I was shocked about just the mob that wanted this woman to fail. It, it was shocking to me. I, I was I'm on Twitter almost every day. I actually love it. It's my favorite platform. <laughs> and still it surprised me. I was like, wow, you all are just going to like hate her and drag her. It was just a huge group project for the day. And I was really surprised. <laughs> really, I don't read a lot of the negative things I get because I don't care what they think anyway. You know, it's the people that I meet that are inspired either as filmmakers or in, in something that I say or some way that I can help them uh, that keeps me doing it and the rest can go off into an island unto mm -hmm. themselves <laughs> Well, we all succeed. I, I mean, in their Twitter moments, I would, when the unicorn came out, that was a huge Twitter moment, the unicorn hashtag with Brie Larson, the movie that she made. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. It was a huge deal on Twitter. That's why I ended up going and watching it. And then I loved it. And I became part of that mob. So there are mobs. There are happy mobs as well. There are happy mobs. Yes. Uh, the unicorn store. That's what that one oh, is. Oh, excuse me. The unicorn store. Because there's a show called the unicorn. A TV I also show. love that actually is why. I, I haven't that. seen that. I don't watch a lot of TV unless I'm, I'm like right now I'm watching the witcher because I'm interviewing the two gals, two of the gals that are the leads on that show. And what's the other one I'm doing? Oh, uh, lost in space. I'm interviewing all the folks on lost in space. So I, I usually watch TV when I'm going to be doing an interview, but right now I have about mm, 16 more movies to watch between now and Friday in order to be able to vote for everything. So oh. <laughs> it's I have a feeling you take that task seriously and you will be watching them all. Oh yeah. I, I have two questions. One, Gosh, one is going to be a distraction, I think. So let me just quickly have That's you okay. sh shout out, where can people check out these interviews you're talking about? Uh, okay, so it's the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA. They have a site called thecredits.org, and uh, you can find them there. Sometimes I tweet about it through Women Rock Film, and, and then I write reviews and do some interviews 
for the Alliance of Women Film Journalists, which is the awfj.org. You're all over the place. You sent me some links in preparation for this. And I was like, wow. Well, speaking of TV, I just want to go circle back real quick. Did you see I Love Dick, which was a TV show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because oh that's all a bunch of, bunch of girls working on that. So, yeah. When I think of, of the, like a, a female-centric experience, I loved it so much. That was another one I was disappointed. Like, it's not coming back? Am I the only one that enjoyed this? Well, it could have been because they were going on to a next project. I'm not totally sure. I can't remember. It's delightful. Not only is the title hilarious, but the, it's just so uniquely female, in my opinion. Just the yeah, perspective yes. and the feeling of it and the sexuality of it. It's it's not a like pink lace sexuality. It's It's more gritty and more realistic. I really loved it. Well, gratefully, we're headed in that direction in, in film and TV, which is so nice to have more diversity of thought, and more inclusivity, whether it's sexuality or gender or cultural perception. I think it's really great because it's so much more interesting to hear about things that we don't know about yet, isn't it? Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's so yes. much more interesting. Absolutely. I also want to add that you have, you have owned and ran an art gallery, I think in Virginia, for 26 years, which is also film-centric. The Art Insights Gallery of Film and Contemporary Art, which I want everybody to know, features Harry Potter concept art. Yep. Oh, actually, yeah. That um, I've been, I was in a bunch of panels at Comic-Con for Harry Potter, and when Darren Chris was pre-famous <laughs> when he was doing Harry Potter stuff. He was on the same panel as me, so I've known him a long time. And he was destined to be famous from the beginning. I think a lot of people didn't think that anyone, well, at least in Warner Brothers, didn't think that anyone was going to buy anything Harry Potter related. Uh-huh. And um, I, along with a friend of mine who worked with Warner Brothers, made a case that we thought it, there was an audience for it. And so, yeah, the art of Mary Grand Prix, who did the first covers for the U.S. editions, and Stuart Craig, who did all the production design from all of the movies. There's, you can actually get art from, that, from those people, and I have that. But I also represent a really famous movie poster artist named John Alvin, who did E.T. and Blade Runner and Young Frankenstein and 200 and some odd other movie posters and, um, you know, peanuts and Disney and all the stuff that people think isn't real art that I do. (laughs) It's the, it's really the most, it's the kind of art that everybody has experienced. Like people don't necessarily go out to art galleries, but almost everybody has been to a movie theater. It's, I love movies because to me, this is maybe too bold of a statement to make, but it's the highest art because it's a combination of all the arts is how I see it. That's a good way of looking at it. Well, it does require quite a diversity of creation and creativity and, you know, inspiration and from a def- bunch of different perspectives. I just really love the idea that, that, some, that, that people would learn about these artists behind the scenes in films. So like there's a production 
uh, a matte background painter that whose art I carry from Star Wars, who actually worked. So everything in the whole store is done by people who actually worked on the movies. And so when people come in, a lot of them don't want to buy anything. They just think it's cool. And that's fine, you know, because I'm there to also educate. And I don't just sit there waiting for people to wander in and buy stuff either, because we have people that we sell to all over the world. So I love to talk to people about who these artists are and why they're important. And it hopefully will change a little bit the way they see the art um, when they're watching a film, the art behind it. And, you know, all of the aspects that go into making a finished film. And, and it's, it's all art by those kinds of artists, um, Marvel and DC and all that. And it's a lot of fun because when you have, for example, like a little, a, a little kid that comes in and they've only ever seen art that has no connection to them, that they cannot have, they, they don't have any understanding of it from their in their own lives and then they see something that they can relate to and it recalibrates their understanding of what art is that they can have a relationship with the art that it can have something to do with who they are yeah whether they go on to wanting to buy or like or see film art at least when they go somewhere and they see something they can check themselves as to whether they have a personal connection to it. So mm -hmm. it kind of redefines their relationship with art in general. And I love that. Absolutely. I'm going to link to your gallery online too, because it's online and people can check it out. Maybe, yeah. maybe you want to buy your favorite potter head, a very fancy something rather limited edition. I saw some of those were pretty... I think they would make amazing Christmas gifts. Well, yeah, sure. Or you can just enjoy looking at them or reading. I write, um, I think personally, I believe that the reason I'm still, my store is still open because this is a, you know, small business in the world of, of where we are now in this moment in time, challenging for small business owners. And um, I think the reason I'm still open is because I write a lot about the history of the film, the history of pieces. One special piece I might talk about, like we got this thing that was concept art for the making of Disneyland and I just wrote about it. And then we got a bunch of art from Peanuts from the Christmas specials. Um, and I talk about that and about Bill Melendez, who was the guy that did all of the TV specials for all the Peanuts cartoons. So he is the guy from 1965 on, and he, he was actually the nicest man ever in the history of animation. Every person that ever worked with him said he was like the nicest man, and I met him and got to know him, and he was lovely and just this larger-than-life character, and so I write about it on, on the site, and you know, even if somebody doesn't ever want to buy anything, they might learn something about their favorite cartoon or, or their favorite animated feature that they didn't know or about the history of, of art or illustration on our site. So that's another fun thing to do on there. If, if they're like, oh, geez, I wish I could buy it. You don't have to. You can just look at it and enjoy it and embrace it just as art. It doesn't have to be something you buy. Oh, nice. I have one more question for you. It's the biggest question in my opinion, but I also want to make sure that people that are listening on the go can find you. I'm definitely going to link to several websites that lead to your work, but where's what's the main URL that people can find you at? Well, the gallery is artinsights.com. And then as a film person, it's cinemasiren.com. Yeah. But if people are on Twitter 
uh, Women Rocking Hollywood is the place to find me because I'm the most opinionated on there. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've liked me on here, that's probably where you want to go. Okay. So what I love about you across the board is your passion and the way that you really have created what I always say is the kick-ass life of your dreams. Something that's just so specific to you you kind of made your own life and your own career. So my question is, what is your one tip you can share with other people who would like to do something similar, do their own version of what you've done for your life? I think that you pretty much hit it exactly the way you said it, which is I've created my own career. My number one tip is that A lot of times people are being given advice from other people to take what they love doing and try to shoehorn it into what already exists. And we're really in a new paradigm. For one thing, the patriarchy is going to fall. And what that means is not that men are going to fall, but that we're going to have a re, uh, uh, we're going to change the way we work and live and be more collaborative and more cooperative because that's what That's the opposite of patriarchy is being collaborative and cooperative. So the idea is don't shoehorn yourself into something else. Figure out what you love to do and make your own world because it's possible. It's absolutely possible. See what you feel passionate about, you know, figure it out for yourself and just create the job or the life that you want to live. Because uh, I know a lot of female filmmakers who that was their calling and they figured out how to do it. Or maybe you, I mean, who knows what you love to do? Take what you're passionate about and create something that doesn't exist yet. It's much more interesting than shoehorning yourself into somebody else's world. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That is an amazing tip and nobody's ever given that answer before. So thank you so much for doing this, Leslie. It was a blast on my end. I had a great time. That is that, my friends. I hope you had a great time too, and that you're running over to check out Women Rocking Hollywood on Twitter because Twitter and Leslie and movies. Yay! Who here is going to see or has already seen Frozen 2? I feel like she totally sold it to this crowd. I'm definitely going to take the kid to see that. And happy winter solstice. If you're interested in working with the Wheel of the Year and starting with the Winter Solstice module, there is a 30% off discount right now. If you're listening to this in a timely fashion, there will be a link here. And all you have to do is put Yule is Cool. No spaces, all lower caps, Yule is Cool in at checkout. And it will knock 30% off the price. And you can get going on the winter solstice module of the psycho spiritual wheel of the year there will be one more podcast here before the end of 2019 so i will not wish you happy new year just yet i'll just say until we meet again merry christmas for those of you who celebrate christmas happy yule merry solstice and much love to you peace